Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. On a mixtape just around the corner Did a lot in California Can't wait to drop this don't you Yeah, they gon' have fun with that Smash like song and my song's gon' break through Hello like and band. welcome to the podcast That is always up to speed with Formula One This, of course, is the Ringer Formula One show My name is Mark Hamilton And joining me today, Sky Sports Analyst Mr. Mark Daly. I just, I just, I tease. Wow, oh. humble brags all over the place, dude. I mean, <laughs> oh man. I was like, how, oh, am I gonna, how am I going to work this in and make it subtle, but also give you a little shine too because of your work with Sky? But yeah, so I, I'm going to go right to the meat because I was super excited about it. Yeah. I didn't get the opportunity to record the Hungarian Grand Prix review with you and Tim a couple of days ago, which actually really hurt because I wanted to talk about it. <laughs> Because it, it wow, was so yeah. eventful, uh, and you and I will talk a little bit about it. But I, I got I got the dream tap on the shoulder last week, and was given the opportunity to pop onto the Ringer F1 show. And for me, this is huge because for a decade I have been obsessed with Grantland. I have been obsessed with the Ringer. I consume a ton of their stuff, so it was super super cool to me. Um, Megan Schuster was hosting this week. Kevin Clark is off covering the NFL training camp situation. Uh, it was fantastic, and of course Tim was there. Um, it was really. Really, really great. So if you haven't had a chance to check that out, make sure you do. But don't forget to also check out our Sunday race recap, the Hungarian Grand Prix hosted by Tim Haraney and Mark Daly. And I'm saying this, my friend, because we were traveling a lot this week and we had the opportunity to listen to a lot of Hungarian Grand Prix uh, <laughs> review I, I can confidently say, and we listened to some big time shows, the effort that you and Tim put out on Sunday was bar none the best that I heard. And I, of course, I'm coming oh, thanks, from a place dude. of bias, but yeah, the, sure. that was a yeah. banger of an episode, just a banger. So congratulations to both of you. Thanks, man. You know, it was such a fun show to do because uh, I, I think Tim and I, we kind of held it in all day until we sat down uh, you know, behind the mics to actually talk about it. And boy, you know, I, I thought that this championship, this this championship break might have kind of just passed with a bit of a whimper. But there was so much to talk about that race. And then, you know, we had like, a, and, and you didn't even get a chance to mention it, but that uh, we dropped the show with Taco Trey Kirby, another one of your favorites, uh, you know, a couple of days, uh, you know, a couple of days ago as well. Right. 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 And I was thinking, well, it seemed like there was so much drama after the Hungarian Grand Prix. And we decided, well, we're going to drop this one kind of in between the race recap and then the weekly show and kind of give the show with Trey like a couple of days to percolate and breathe b between the, the, the regular drama drops right and then so i thought well i'm going to release it a little bit earlier number one because you know i had everything all ready to go you had the show with trey recorded i figured you know let's just not hold back on it i figured that the the way that the the interest kind of like i wouldn't say it really died after the hungarian grand prix but i just felt like everybody's kind of like 
ready to move on as eventful as that race was. So I teed it up and I'm kind of glad that I did because if I'd waited to drop it at the time I was going to, I think that show with Trey would have been completely lost in all the other noise that's been going on around in Formula One this week. It's been we should, crazy, We should, man. by the way, also also mention that uh, before I left for my trip on Sunday, you're like, hey, make sure you send me the final file so I can upload it. And I left and did it. And a couple couple of days later, you had to break into my house, come down to my <laughs> office, and I had taken my computer mouse with me. So you're sitting nervously in the basement of my house in front of my computer, sitting yeah. nervously in the basement of my house, sitting in front of a dual screen computer setup without any mouse trying to find a <laughs> file to send to the cloud so you could go well, home and upload it. So I appreciate it was, the effort. You went above and it beyond. It was funny, right? Because there, there's a bit of a backstory to this. So I mean, last week I tested positive for COVID, right? About 10 days ago. And and it was about in and around the time that you recorded with uh, with, with Trey. And you were like, dude, I know you're at home. And fortunately, you know, touch wood here. I didn't get really sick. Nobody in the family, it's, it's, it's gone through the entire family here. But touch wood, none of us got really sick, right? Anyways, I was doing my bit and, and isolating and kind of avoiding civilization in general. And you're like, dude, here, you know, here's the show with uh, Trey. Have a listen. You know, you get like a sneak preview and everything. And then you also sent me like the, the the high quality WAV file so I could listen to that. And, you know, it was awesome. I mean, it's like I was just finding ways to pass time while, you know, like the, the whole COVID whirlwind kind of went through our through our house here. So I did and I deleted it instead of, you know, processing the uh, the audio and compressing it in an MP3 to upload it to the feed. And so what 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 I stupidly what I did is I, I listened to it, I deleted it, and then like, I think at like four in the morning or sometime I'm never on my 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 laptop. I have this utility run, and part of the utilities like uh, the 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 modules that it does is it goes and cleans out the recycle bin. So I was you know <laughs> I was at fault for deleting the audio I was supposed to process and upload it. So that when you said that there was you know you're like I'm I'm offering to pay people to go to my house, and I'm like. That person should really be me because I'm the jerk that <laughs> deleted it. And moreover, I should not be accepting anybody to do this. But uh, I'm glad it worked out because it would have been a shame if that one uh, got got a little bit lost because Trey's awesome. And uh, that, that was a really, really fun episode to listen to. Of course. And Trey Kirby of The Athletic uh, and the No Dunks podcast and the No Breaks podcast, formerly of TNT's The Starters. And prior to that, he was, of course, a instrumental part of the Basketball Jones on the score, which was one of the, the first real, I would say, um, Greenfield podcasts or podcasts that didn't come from an established media house, but achieve mm -hmm. massive success. So again, uh, yeah. Trey Kirby from The Athletic does a fantastic job, super funny guy, huge basketball guy, was a basketball blogger for many years, has been in the basketball media industry forever, and late last year took on the creation of a Formula One podcast for The Athletic that's branded similar to the basketball podcast he does, but he was fantastic. You know, we get guests on, sometimes it's their fourth media engagement that day or the fifth mm -hmm. interview they've done. He came on and he was wired and he had a ton of energy and I feel like we could have gone much longer, but I wanted to be respectful as time. And ultimately it was just a lot of fun. And we talk a little bit about basketball, a little bit about Formula One. We talked about the democratization of digital media and some other cool concepts. So make sure you check that one out. Make sure you, of course, you check out the Sunday Grand Prix review if you haven't already. And make sure you check out the Sunday Ringer Grand Prix review as well. So lots of content this week. 
Yeah, and uh, there's more coming. I mean, we got lots of great uh, guests lined up as part of our ongoing interview series. And, uh, you know, if you guys thought that we were going to go anywhere over the summer break, then, well, sadly, we're going to be here annoying you all summer long, but you're not going to hear so much from us. But we got some great, uh, you know, great guests coming like uh, Kevin Clark, Megan Schuster, Steph Wentworth, Hamda Al Kubasi. Did I say that right? Probably not. Close, you know, close, close, close. Yeah, yeah. So Hamda is coming as well and uh, some others as well. So, you know, be, you know, be ready because your, your feed is not going to dry up from us a- anytime soon. It's just like, I feel like we're busier now in the break than we are in a, well, just uh, in, in, in regular time. So it's, uh, it's kind of fun at the, at the same time to, to keep uh, busy. And it's just, it's cool when people are reaching out, want to collaborate, want to connect with us and do things. It's just like, yeah, this is what we got into this to, to do was to connect with other people. So, I mean, I don't want to say no, because I mean, there's so many awesome people that, uh, that, uh, that we're creating content with nowadays. And it's just, uh, it's a lot of fun. Definitely. And a quick reminder as well, not this coming week, but the week after, Matt Sikaris, who's of course a yep. big local media personality in the Vancouver market, who's been on a, with us a couple of times in the past, um, has provided some really great strategic and business guidance to us to help yep. grow our show. Uh, he's going to join us. We're going to talk a little bit about the soon-to-be-posted provisional calendar for 2023, which of course is as Always reported, fun. going to lose a couple of very, very classic races, so that should be fun. And I'll let you tee this one up, but we also have the first of a special series of podcasts dropping next week. Yeah, so this will be a sort of a semi-regular thing, and it's not semi-regular for any other reason that uh, you and I are probably slow readers, although I'm a bit of a prolific <laughs> reader. It's just, it, it takes me a while to, to kind of get through uh, things, uh, what with uh, everything else going on and just having the bandwidth, but we're going to start an F1 book club, and so the first episode we're going to record next week with a very special co-host, which we are sort of kind of... Not going to tell you about right now, but uh, it's really fun, and we're really looking forward to connecting with her and uh, discussing the book, which we're also not going to tell you about right now because, you know, what's what's the point? You know, got to keep you guys on the hook. So, <laughs> at any rate, it should be fun. Anyway, it was funny. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, the other day, and um, I-, I told him exactly what we were up to. I told him which book it was. He went out and ordered it uh, and and got it already, so he can actually read the book oh, in I advance of us doing the love show it. next week. So that that should be a lot of fun. So I'm except, uh, expecting my good friend Bart to pick that episode apart and tell me exactly where I went wrong because uh, I know he'll be way too polite to leave everybody else alone, but. You you know, and and so we should. You know, why, why should I get off the let off the hook, right? The recommendation from our listeners as well was that going forward, when we do this, we should crowdsource ideas for the books, and that would give people in the audience, people listening at home, the opportunity to read the book as well. So when we go yep. to do the podcast, they of course they can, you know it obviously join in. But that said, again, it's a podcast. It's not a live TV broadcast. You can download and listen to it anytime. So if it's a podcast that's already posted, like the one that is, and you haven't had a chance to read the book, you don't need to listen to the podcast right away. Go get the book, give it a read. Yeah, it's a bit of a an evergreen thing, right? So what are we starting with? Tolstoy's War and Peace, was it next week? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's going to be a 
bit of a bit of a meaty one to kind of bite into right off of the, the very first time considering it's only about like 8500 pages and it's i'm the only german translation page. we're doing actually, oh god the german oh, translation geez. i guess i should get on that or else i'm going to be behind the eight ball come uh, you know come next week when we sit down to do this thing but should we do something was, formula one-ish now that we're 20 minutes into the show do you, yeah, you want to walk us through the championship maybe. standings ah uh, geez do i have to and and i don't even have it ready actually i do have it ready because i did get the show outline and i did kind of get all the stuff yeah, locked and loaded. Seven minutes to recording, <laughs> you got the outline. <laughs> hey, you know this is how we roll here on the Scootery F1. We kind of fly by the seat of our pants sometimes, and that's uh, that's all good. Anyways, this is a bit, uh, you know, an opportunity to wipe the slate clean here before we get into all the news of the week. And boy, has there been a lot of crazy, crazy news uh, this week. We will just kind of, like I say, clear the slate, go over the uh, the Drivers' and Constructors' Championship uh, very briefly. On the driver's side, uh, Max Verstappen leaving the 2022 Formula One Drivers' Championship with 258 points. Uh, Charles Leclerc from Ferrari second with 178 points, only five points ahead of Sergio Perez from Red Bull, now only like I say, five points behind Charles with 173. George Russell is actually, he's, you know, making himself known in the championship. He's not that far behind Sergio either, 158. Carlos Sainz, 156. And Lewis Hamilton, 146. I mean, that big gap between Charles and Max, notwithstanding the rest, you know, two through six. I mean, there's not a lot of daylight between those uh, five drivers. I mean, there's only 30-something points between uh, Lewis and six and Charles and second, which is... uh, could be very interesting between now and the end of the year, depending how things uh, play out in the second half of the uh, the season. Over on the uh, constructor side of the championship, Red Bull leading the way, 431 points. That seems like crazy amount of points that RBR has so far. Ferrari, 334. Mercedes, 304. That's uh, not a lot of daylight between uh, Ferrari and Mercedes. Uh, I'm sure that uh, Mercedes is going to want to say something about that before the season is done. Uh, Alpine fourth with 99 and McLaren fifth with 95 points. Right. Talking about updates, do you have a Formula One Fantasy League update? I just I just want to know how many Brits are still in the top 10 and just, you know, embarrassing the rest of our global community here. You're just taking us all to school on how to do Formula One Fantasy League stuff. Certainly a fair question. So let me just summarize this. We have one, two, three, four, five, only five Brits in the top 10, five Brits and three Canadians. And to take everyone through, hmm. as we always do, Interesting. number one, number one, Andrew T, 2,683 points from Canada. Adam J, 2,609. From the UK, Whitman R, 2,563 points. Number four, Thaddeus F, 2,549 points. Number five, Ludwig Y, 2,535 points. Number six, from Canada, Noah F, 2,527 points. Number seven, Marshall W, also from the UK, 2,526 points. Number eight, Roman M, 2,522 points. Number nine, Jesse H, also from Canada, 2,512 points. Number 10, Byron H, 2,509 points. Although Daffy A from the UK is only three points behind. So it feels like the top 10 is starting to congeal a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. And clearly, I think if you went through these teams, the common thread might be that a lot of them have Max Verstappen. 
kind of leading the pack and probably did not depend on Ferrari drivers such as Charles <laughs> Leclerc, which is where I went all in. So, so yeah, it's, it's close, uh, at least at the top 10. Again, we're going to have prizes for the top three. We're finalizing the okay. details. It'll be some can, combination can of swag. Can we announce what our grand prize is now? Uh, I, it might kill the fantasy league. You know, everybody in the top 10 might just say, screw it, I'm out. So, okay, big reveal here is the winner of our Formula One Fantasy League this year becomes Ferrari's chief strategist for next season. <laughs> so, you know, okay, I'm just going to put it there. So, you know, you guys do what you need to do or not. But, you know, we, we just wanted to give somebody, you know, a, a good prize. So I'll leave it in your guys' head whether that's that's something you want or not. And, of course, I'm being extremely cheeky. I'm being ex- very, very, very cheeky. Anyways, um, let's move on to the next thing. You found this really cool uh, stat here from a F1 Stats Guru on Instagram. And it's the leaders of the Constructors Championship after the Grand Prix or the, the Hungarian Grand Prix who have won the title in the last uh, 14 years. So this goes back to 2008. And the team that was uh, leading the championship in 2008 at the summer break after the Hungarian Grand Prix was Ferrari. They had an 11-point lead. 2009 was Braun, GP, who went on to go into Formula One legends and won the championship that year. They had 15 and a half points. Oh, God damn it. The half points again uh, after last year. Uh, <laughs> I just can't go back to the half points. Anyways, uh, Braun, uh, they, they were leading the constructors at this point. Then 2020, bleh, 2010 to 2013, I'm going to need some more coffee here. It was all Red Bull. They had the slimmest leads in uh, 2010 with only eight points after Hungary. And the biggest lead they had was 103 in 2011 and then 53 and 69 in 12 and 13. So they obviously went on to win the championships those years. Then we get into the Mercedes era. And my God, the, some of the gaps that uh, they have or leads that they have in the Constructors' Championships are massive. In 2014, Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton for Mercedes had extended a 174-point lead at the top of the Constructors that year. It was the same in 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20, and 21. But it's interesting, as time goes on, that gap gets smaller. It was 174 and 14, 147, 15, 154 and 16, 17. We had a bit of a challenge uh, from Ferrari. They were leading by only 39 points. In 2018, we had another decent challenge from Ferrari. And so the gap at the summer break was uh, 10 points. 2019, uh, the challenge from Ferrari had evaporated. The Mercedes had reestablished their dominance. They had 115 point, 150, pardon me, point break at the uh, point uh, lead at the summer break. 2020 was 66. 21, it was 12. And then uh, last year, we go into the summer break. It was Red Bull. Oh, pardon me. Last year, they had a 12 point lead going into the summer break. This year, going into the summer break, it's Red Bull who have a 97-point lead. And of course, whether or not they go on to win it is still to be seen. But you would have to think, unless the wheels completely fall off the Red Bull program for 2022, that it just it has to be a bit of a foregone conclusion now. But I think that's a, a very, very cool stat that, uh, that you found there, Mr. H. And another tweet. Uh, I'm going to let you read this one off because this is a cool one because this kind of uh, sets things up uh, a little bit nice because before yeah. we get into silly season <laughs> and all that news, I'll let you read this one. 
We'll transition into a break. We'll come back. We'll go over all the drama because I know you're aching to talk about the Hungarian Grand Prix. And I I'm am, not going to be a total jerk and say no because, I mean, we've been we've been texting each you're other kind. back and forth you're all week. You're so. kind. Anyways. So this, this tweet just reinforces how deeply embedded Formula One is becoming in the public consciousness that five years ago, 10 years ago, I would never have imagined an athlete playing in any of North America's four major sports tweeting about Formula One. And maybe they did in the broadest sense. Congratulations to Lewis Hamilton for his seventh yeah. world championship. A tweet popped up this weekend from Joel, Joel Embiid. Joel as a basketball fan, I should be ashamed of myself. From Joel Embiid, <laughs> of course, of the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, he's still looking to score his first MVP title. Maybe it's going to happen this coming year. But he tweeted on the 31st of July, and I quote, I might as well be a Ferrari strategist right now, LOL. Every week is more incredible than the other. And if you unpack this tweet, what's it basically really sums interesting up the whole about this season. Yeah, but it also just reinforces <laughs> that this guy's clearly watching the races, which is oh, totally. in itself very, very yeah. cool. So we have high caliber NBA guys sharing their opinion on Formula One and their opinion is bang on. So Joel... Awesome. Love it. Keep watching. Keep tweeting. Welcome to the, the Formula One community. Yeah, I thought that was a really, really cool as well. And, you know, that is such a cool tweet for so many reasons. Like you say, I mean, number one, it shows that he's watching. He's he's dialed in. He knows what's going on. And number two, in, in just those two sentences, I mean, he's basically condensed and summed up Ferrari's entire season to this point, which I thought was uh, incredible. I thought that was uh, one of the best tweets that I've seen uh, in, in, in quite a while. Anyways, let's take a very, very quick break. When we come back on the flip side, you and I are going to talk about some of the drama from the Hungarian Grand Prix, and then uh, we'll get into silly season. And it's been very silly so far this, uh, this season-ish. Anyhow, we'll do so in just a moment. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights and more. Whether you're into speed, power or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. 
All right, welcome back. And yes, Mark, I know that uh, we were going to go and uh, talk uh, about uh, the, the the Hungarian Grand Prix because, boy, there's been so many things that you and I have been talking about. It just uh, for for you and I, this one has has barely died down at all. But I just wanted to to read this one. You just uh, dropped another uh, thing into the show notes here that I uh, completely read over here, just glanced over. And it really uh, bears mentioning. It's from Adam Stern at ESPN, and uh, he tweeted uh, heading to the summer break. ESPN's, <clears throat> excuse me, F1 ratings are up another thirty five percent this year from last year to an average of one point three million viewers. F1 averaged nine hundred thirty four k last year, which was up thirty nine percent from twenty nineteen, and the best all time in the U S, beating the prior record of seven hundred forty eight k in nineteen. 19- 95. So these are big, big numbers. And I know you love talking about this. So I know that uh, you probably got a couple of thoughts on Adam's numbers here, Mark. Nah, not really. I just want to talk really? about the Hungarian Grand Prix. <laughs> you want to We're going to talk about the Hungarian Grand Prix now because there's so much silly season stuff to get to, but you and I just sure. didn't have a chance to talk about this. So it's funny, man. Like last week, knowing I was going to go on to the ringer, I spent a ton of time preparing for that show. And I do for us, like I, I I make an effort for you and I make an effort for our listeners, obviously, but I wanted to make sure I was dialed in and I had a narrative in mind and I was going to go on to that show because I presumed Mm -hmm. the race was going to be a procession. It was going to be boring. There was going to be passing nowhere except on T1 at the end of the main straight. And I was just going to launch into this diatribe about diatribe, 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 something like that. Anyway, keep going. I'll pull up the dictionary. (laughs) I was going to rant about the fact that the Hungora ring is a relic from another era, that it was built for cars from the 1980s that are two or three feet shorter and 200 kilograms lighter, and that a modern Formula One car is never going to work here, and that they're going to significantly need to rework the track. Unfortunately, my my planned approach to that podcast kind of got blown up because we saw some really good racing and we saw a ton of overtakes. Now, most of the overtakes were at T1 at the end of that long straight, but yeah, please, but we, I, see, I see your I've, face. I was going to say, because this is a track that we never see any overtaking on or not very much. And, you know, I've been lazy as hell this week and I really should have gone and looked up the stats on this, but I feel like this is probably one of the most eventful Hungarian Grand Prix we've seen in many years, if not ever, with just in terms of overtaking. I, I'd love to know how many overtakes there were this past week and how that compares to all time. But like I say, I've you know, unlike you who shows up prepared, I come rolling into the studio five minutes late, completely unprepared, and you know, I just kind of The listeners like wing know, it. Mark. The listeners know. You don't, yeah, you don't, then, have, to, I, you don't I, have to go there. <laughs> yeah, I know. The, 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 the note of exasperation in your voice kind of like strikes me right in the, in, the, in, the, in the heart. So, excuse me, I, I will do better. I will try to do better. Anyways, I, please go I think, on. Yeah, just to build on that, it was not the race, not the outcome I expected. And in a lot of ways, it feels like the cars, the, the improvements that they made, the fact that they're generating downforce from the bottom and there's less weight behind them. It, it seemed to help, and it was possibly one of the most eventful and entertaining, largely dry Grand Prix I ever remember seeing there. And it really started from qualifying, and George Pohl takes George Pohl, George Russell takes pole to sport bike not setting a purple sector on any of his final laps. Uh, you had, of course, Nicholas Latifi. He's 
the top performer in free practice three, and then he sets a blistering sector one in Q1, but isn't able to string it together with a strong Q2 and a Q3. So he almost found a way to get into Q2. Um, the race starts, George Russell's on pole. Ultimately, we see some shuffling. It looks like Charles Leclerc is going to shift into the lead, run away with this race. Ferrari strategy cost him once again, cost his team. His teammate, Carlos Sainz, has a terrible pit stop, clocking in at just under five seconds. Everything goes terribly for Ferrari once again, which is the story that keeps on giving to podcasters like us. Max Verstappen just runs a phenomenal race. They pivoted on their tire strategy right before the race was to get started. They ran long, did their stop. He sliced and diced the field, even made an error, spun, managed to recover, absolutely dominated this race. His team strategy was bang on. And as a consequence of the fact that Ferrari couldn't get their their stuff together and capitalize on the way that they had qualified, you ultimately end up with Lewis Hamilton, who has a really, really great tire strategy, go super long on the medium so that he can come in on the soft for some blistering final laps. You ultimately end up with two largely irrelevant Ferrari, but you have two Mercedes on the podium again. And then all of a sudden, the conversation now is no longer about, hey, who's going to win the constructors? Red Bull is going to win the constructors. It's not so clear now that Ferrari's even going to finish second in the constructors. There could very well be a business case developed that suggests that maybe Mercedes storms ahead and takes that lead from them. Now, the one thing that I did want to kind of take everyone through real quick before we move on to the other topic is a little bit of data I put together for the Ringer podcast because I thought this was really interesting. So if you look at the point spread with nine races left since 2014, and I'm talking about the point spread between the top two finishers in the World Drivers Championship with nine races left. In 2014, Nico led Lewis by 14 points, but would Mm -hmm. lose by 67. In 2015, Lewis led Nico by 21 and would win by 59. In 16, Lewis was leading Nico by 19, but would lose by five. In 2017, Seb was leading Lewis by 14, but ultimately lost by 46. In 2018, Lewis was leading Seb by 24, ultimately won by 88. 2019, Lewis was leading Bottas by 62 and won by 87. In 2020, Lewis was over Bottas by 47, won by 124. In 2021, Max was leading Lewis by three points, ultimately won by eight. As it stands right now, With nine races left, Max is leading Charles Leclerc by 80 points. That is the biggest margin of, I was going to say error, that is the biggest lead that a driver's had over another driver in the championship in the turbo hybrid era. I think it's fairly safe to say that not only is this championship locked up, I think now it's more a question about when's he going to do it? When is he going to win that chip? If you look at the... The period of 2014 on Lewis actually won the title in the final race in 14 in 2015. He won it with three races remaining when he won at Austin 2016. Nico won in the final race 17. Lewis won it in the 18th race. So with two races left, he won it in Mexico in 2018. Lewis won it in race 19. So with two left 2019, he won it with two left in 2020. He won it with three left. And of course, last year it was one in the final battle. 
this year it's going to be pretty clear. Max could win in Japan, and if he doesn't win in Japan, he's probably going to win in Austin, which means we're going to have three relatively boring races. So last year was an absolute thriller. I think it's looking like this is going to be something of a, a bloodbath when all is said and done, because I just can't imagine Red Bull stepping a foot wrong the rest of the way. No, I, I mean, they, they might have a bad race here or there, but I mean, for, for them to lose it at this point with the, the, the leads that they have in both championships, it just does not seem, doesn't seem likely. I mean, there, there's more of a chance that I'll go and win the lottery tomorrow, be picked as a running mate for uh, for, pres- for the presidential election in 2024 and get abducted by aliens before the end of the weekend. I mean, it's just, it's not going to happen. One of those things. I mean, I, I might get picked as a running mate. I mean, with Nancy I, Pelosi. <laughs> oh, I don't know. She's uh, been causing a little bit of controversy this week. You know, I mean, a bit. <laughs> that's an inside joke because we've previously been c- accused of being Nancy Pelosi boosters on this show. Um, we don't know Everybody, where that came funny. from. I don't know where that ever came from because the first time that we ever mentioned Nancy Pelosi on the show was addressing like this, this wild the, comment addressing that we said. The rumors, like, we're in Canada. We are not contributing to Nancy Pelosi nor voting for her. <laughs> that was just so funny. Anyways, but you know, just uh, back to the case in point is I, I just don't see how Red Bull could put a foot wrong. I mean, it was just such an incredible race. I mean, to, to kind of dial it back and just kind of hit on some of those points that you raised. We talked, we sat down here a week ago saying that this was basically a make-or-break race for Ferrari because they've had all this drama, all this bad luck, uh, and all this you know stuff that's happened to them in the first half of the season. We said they need to have a good race. They need to go into the summer break on a high note, on a positive note. And it looked like it was going to happen. It looked like they were set, getting set for a front-row lockout. And then out of nowhere, George Russell comes and steals pole position and then slowly but surely from there, they started going backwards. It, w- it was funny because my immediate thought was, and, you know, we, we were chatting back and forth with Tim, you know, like, like afterwards. It was just like our big discussion after qualifying was, you know, who, do, who does George fight off going into turn one? He can't fight both Carlos and Charles. It's just like he's got maybe like time for, for one move, but he's not going to be able to hold both of them off. I did not think that by the end of lap one, George Russell would still be leading that race. I figured at some point they would get him, but it was kind of funny. I mean, you know, they, they kind of settled into a rhythm. I thought, uh, you know, maybe Ferrari's going to play the long game here and maybe try for the undercut because this is a track where the undercut is usually quite powerful. And then, well, wow. I mean, not only did they get their, their, uh, their, their strategy wrong, it just like, I felt I felt like it was a unifying moment for the Formula One community. I felt like watching this race and going through my my my, my timeline on Twitter, it's just like I felt like collectively we were all having a WTF moment when we were watching what Ferrari was doing in real time. And everybody's like, how come we can see this? Why can't they see this? Why are they doing this? Why? <laughs> it was like watching a car wreck happen in slow motion. It was just... It was such a an odd, odd uh, moment. But I mean, there were some great things that that happened. I mean, Max Verstappen. You know, let's let's be honest. Starting from tenth, having a spin during the race should not have won that race. I mean, it just uh, on on a dry track. So I mean, that just goes to show you just how incredible of an, an afternoon that he had. Then also, uh, it, it's it's a shame in a way 
that that race maybe didn't go another 10 or 15 laps because it would have been great to see Lewis and Max go at it again, uh, you know, which is something we really haven't had the opportunity to see too much of uh, this year. I mean, I think we were all hoping for a rematch of 2021. And I felt like it was kind of setting up for that, except we uh, just kind of lost out at the at the end. But boy, wow, Ferrari, ouch. Uh, you know, I, I don't even know what to say about them at this point uh, anymore. And I know that, uh, you know, we, we've talked about it. Everybody's talked about it in the past uh, several days, but I just feel like th- there, there's still so much more to discuss about the, you know, what, what's going on at Marinello. Yeah, and... <sighs> We we've seen we've seen the statements coming out of Marinello indicating that change isn't necessary. There will be no structural or organizational change. But we are talking about errors that have already cost this team tens of millions of dollars of prize money. That these mistakes are very real. Forget about the fact that maybe they don't win a driver's championship. What's at stake here is the prize money associated with the constructors' title. And they are just hemorrhaging points. And ultimately, if they do get passed by Mercedes, that's not an insignificant amount of money that they're going to lose. And in cases like this, there has to be organizational accountability that this mm. is this isn't a not-for-profit. This is a for-profit business. And if you have a specific individual or individuals within your build or your business that are committing such egregious acts as executing those type of strategy calls, they need to go. And quite frankly, so too do the people that continue to support and empower them because it's clear to everyone what this team's weaknesses are. They've got challenges with pit stops and they've got horrendous issues with with strategy and on top of that their drivers have made errors this year now the drivers as athletes often are are probably not necessarily going to be the target in in a moment of change obviously you see in professional sports in north america head coaches general managers they'll 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 be the ones that go first but in this case there's people within this organization that cannot be in this organization anymore that you you've made mm-hmm. not one, two, three, multiple strategy errors. Like as a, as a strategy analyst and somebody that, that has that as a core job function, you don't get to make any errors. And I mean, when you do, you lose, you lose the confidence of the drivers and the wall and the garage. And that has serious psychological impacts on the team as they approach every mm. single race. So there, there need to be changes, man. There need to be changes there. Okay, I, I got a couple of questions here for you then. So number one, when it comes to making changes like on the pit wall, in the garage, in the factory, organizationally, when do you start making these changes? Because, you know, at, at some point they got to treat it like the development of the car for next year. Do you want to drag this all out and wait till the very end and then start making changes? Or do you want to start making some of these changes now so that you're in a better position for, for, for next year, right? I mean, so, you know, when it comes to personnel and stuff like that, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it would be kind of like throwing up the, uh, the, the the white flag and kind of maybe surrendering, you know, or signaling to the rest of the uh, of the grid that, yeah, our our fight for 2022 is up. But, you know, we're looking at to next year. So what would you start making those changes? And then you also mentioned the the mistakes that the drivers made. And of course, they're all human. Everybody, even elite athletes in in, in any sports, all have uh, moments and uh, are subject to, to making errors. I just can't help uh, but wonder that some of the things that we've seen the Ferrari drivers do 
is maybe impacted a little bit just by the knowledge that they're not a hundred percent comfortable with the fact that in that they don't have their back on the pit wall. And I mean, I'm not suggesting for a moment that Ferrari's throwing them out there without support or anything, but what you know, you just know that if we're kind of like leaving it up to the uh, you know the guys on the pit wall, they, they, there's obviously not a lot of confidence there. I just can't help but wonder if perhaps that weighs a little bit on Charles and Carlos when they're out there. And, you know, maybe they're pushing a little bit hard in some instances and who knows, maybe to- that led totally to, to some agree. of the, the situations, right? We, we talked about this, the fact that th- all of these unforced errors have put them on the back foot and mm-hmm. you have to wonder, are Carlos and and Charles Leclerc driving, knowingly driving these cars at or beyond the limit out of desperation because well, they right. know it's like they got to go ev- like every, every time they go they're they're out there they're swinging for the fence every time every race it's just they're under so much pressure I, I totally agree with you yeah. sorry I I jumped in no no no, no, no. that's there. great that's great I just and I recall a comment that uh, Bryson Sullivan made on our show the first time he popped on which is hey at the end of the day these cars dance, quote unquote, dance on the edge of adhesion, which is a perfectly apt description. Mm. But if you just, if you just apply a little too much throttle, or you just go into a corner a little too hot, or you break a little too late, that's, that's the end of your race. And I think psychologically, the situation is wearing on, on both of them. And I just, I don't know, we said two weeks ago, I don't know how they recover from France. I, I don't know how they recover from this. Like they're, they're done. Like if we look at the championship standings, like nobody has come back from an 80 point deficit with nine races left in the modern era. It's not going to happen no. this year. Uh, and ultimately they're not going to win the constructors. And I think quite frankly, the only thing that they have to fight for now is to keep Mercedes behind them. But Mercedes quietly has just staged double podiums and back to back races. And Lewis has had what now five consecutive podiums. Like, they're certainly certainly rounding into shape, and Lewis yeah, is sure. psychologically in a place that he certainly wasn't in earlier in the season. He's in a really great place, and we talked about the fact that two weeks ago, George Russell is sitting there in Austria talking about the fact that, look, we now understand the car, which means that we can start fixing the car. For the better part of the season, we didn't understand the car, so we couldn't fix it. We now understand the car, so they're only going to continue to deploy meaningful updates to to their cars. So sure, yeah, it's going to be an sure. interesting championship, but it's not going to be about who's going to win the championship anymore because that's, that's preordained. No, it's just, uh, it might be some of the, I don't want to say one of the, the, the main headlines, but it might be some of the other things that we refocus on in the second half of the season. But I, I think it's very, very interesting. I mean, the, the storylines for me is like, where do Ferrari go? Do they go up down as do they maintain the, the, the status quo? What what happens with the Mercedes? Uh, as as you so rightly pointed out, I mean they've quietly been rising over the past uh, several weeks, and and I, I think you make a great point. I mean Lewis seems like he's in a completely different headspace. Was that in Australia that he said he you know it was just like after two laps he was talking about retiring the car? <laughs> it's just like he felt he like give it up on the entire weekend, which was uh, that was just an incredible moment, but. You know, other things uh, too, you know, McLaren and Alpine, that's pretty tight. And as I mentioned off the top of the show, when going through the driver's championship, I mean, if you go from uh, P2 to P6, from Charles all the way down to Lewis, there's only 30 points separating those guys after, was it, 13 races? 
So it's going to be pretty fun over the last nine or 10 races of the year to see where those uh, positions in the championship uh, shake out. Anyways, time for another quick break. When we come back, we're going to get silly and talk about silly season. And uh, there's definitely lots of silliness coming on. So uh, time for me to stop saying the word silly. So let's take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, welcome back. And yes, Mark, well, I got to pull out my notes here. Well, which are really your notes. <laughs> so where do we want to start with this? Because, you know... The- you have, well, I'll just read your little rundown. So in the last week, we had uh, Vettel's announcement of retirement. And then, uh, okay, then, so Latifi tops FP3. Russell takes his first pole. Ferrari blunders, caused some mega points. Mercedes got a double podium. Alonso signs with Aston Martin. Piastri announced, or sorry, Alpine announces Piastri as a driver. Piastri publicly breaks up with Alpine and Albon signs a multi-year deal with Williams. Boy, was that a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, how do we even unpack that? Because it's just been getting crazy. Anyways, first up, let's double back. We'll start with Seb because apparently Aston Martin had pushed him into making an announcement or at least deciding on his future that's kind of a little bit different than what we were talking about this time last week when he made the announcement. But, you know, fair enough. If he was going to leave, he's, you know, I think it's just the right thing to do. I don't think it's out of line from the team at all to seek some clarification on a driver that's considering moving on for one reason or another. But uh, interesting to to hear their reasons why. So why don't you take it from there? Yeah, and I, I'm going to quote here from planetf1.com. According to a respected F1 journalist, the quote-unquote negotiations between the team and the driver, Alonzo, have apparently been taking place in the past few weeks. Aston Martin, keen to secure the Spaniard's signature before Alpine, trying to sweeten their one-year offer with a future drive in Le Mans, Aston Martin pressed Vettel to make a decision before Formula One headed off to its summer break. That, that is why Aston Martin recently approached Vettel with a request to make a decision about his future before the summer break. Team owner Lawrence Stroll met with Alonso in the Aston Martin Motorhome in Hungary on Saturday, he continued, where the new contract was sealed. 
So a lot of moving pieces here. And I think a lot of this goes down to the fact that there were suspicions within the Aston Martin organization or superstructure that Seb was maybe looking to leave the sport. And, you know, we gave him his flowers. We talked about his retirement last week. But what we're learning now is the delivery of said retirement wasn't necessarily on his timetable, but rather in an eager bid to get a replacement driver for him, Lawrence Stroll and Aston Martin pushed him to announce his retirement when he did. This gave them the runway to sign a driver that they'd already been negotiating with for several weeks. And of course, from Alonzo's perspective, this is a good fit. Ultimately, he's going to a team that values him more than anyone else in the sport because they're offering him more term, reportedly three years, and more money, reportedly $20 million a year. And as a 41-year-old driver, this is really your last paycheck in the sport, potentially, and he's looking at an opportunity to cash out. I also think that from an ego perspective, I think Lawrence Stroll desperately wants a world champion in his car, just like he desperately wanted Sebastian Vettel in his car. It's good for marketing. It's good for PR. And maybe, just maybe, he'll help them develop the car and push Lance Stroll in ways that he hasn't been pushed enough in the in the recent past. So interesting story altogether, but it's a unique twist on where we were last week. And this kind of bleeds into the next story. And I'll let you comment on both of these. But Alpine were apparently left in the total dark over Alonso's shock move to Aston Martin. In fact, according to planetf1.com, motorsport.com, and autosport.com, Alpine only learned of his decision when Aston Martin released their press release. So all of a sudden, this team who themselves had been negotiating with Fernando Alonso and felt that they had him in a good place, again, reportedly a one plus one contract. So it was a guaranteed year with an option for a second year. They thought they had a contract, thought they had him in a good place. And then he kind of went on the grid or off the grid for a couple of days and he resurfaces only be to be standing next to Lawrence Stroll celebrating the fact that he was signing with that team. So absolutely peculiar. My friend, what was your impression? Because you and I haven't talked about this. What was your impression first of the Alonzo to Aston Martin deal? Okay. I, I got a question here, right? So there is not a lot of real estate in the Formula One paddock where they have these motor homes. They're all jammed together. So how the hell did Fernando Alonso get into the Aston Martin motorhome during oh, that weekend gosh. and nobody noticed? Did he put on like a raincoat and like a fake mustache and like a wig or something like that? And he sort of like snuck in around and was like let in by like, you know, some somebody from Aston Martin kind of like snuck him in or did he go in like in a cardboard box on a dolly or something? I'd like, I want to know Holy. how he pulled this off during the middle of a race weekend when there's, you know, I can't imagine you there, there's too many secrets in the Formula One paddock at the, at the best of times. So, I mean, kudos to, to to Fernando, Lawrence Stroll, and for, for Aston Martin to keeping a lid on that. I mean, that is an incredible story in and of itself. But, I mean, I find it even more incredible that that that, that Alpine had no idea and basically were, were sideswiped by the news and, and only found out, like, after the fact. It's just like, there must have been, like, a lot of, like, blown minds when, when at, at Alpine HQ when that news broke. 
But then, you know, <laughs> not to be outdone by Fernando, you know, they're, they're kind of like right on it, announcing like right in his footsteps that, um, or, you know, right in the footsteps of that news, that they're signing Oscar Piastri, the young Australian driver who's going to drive for them next year. And then this is kind of like very much like this Alex Palu story from IndyCar a couple of weeks ago, where, you know, Piastri goes on social media says he has no co- contract with the, with with Alpine he's not going to be driving for them next year. Alpine's been saying we've got a deal in place is just like what the h is going on at Alpine right now and it's just it just keeps going crazier and crazier then you got like uh, other stories like uh, Ricardo's been apparently talking to Alpine and he could end up going back there and Safnauer is saying that you know they the door isn't closed for Ricardo so I'm calling it right now I'm saying that Ricardo ends up driving for Alpine I bet Piastri ends up in the McLaren you know it's just it is just so totally bizarre agree. man I'm just I'm reading through some of these comments too, just on the uh, Alonzo Otmar Safnauer piece, and it's it's, it's written here. And this is on PlanetF1.com. They had been in talks, so Alonzo and Alpine. They had been in talks over a new deal from next season, but the two-time world champion accepted the advance of Lawrence Stroll to heed. Uh, to head to the Silverstone team instead, swiping him from under Alpine's noses. The Alpine team principal, Otmar, confirmed he had been assured by Alonso that nothing had been signed over the weekend, so the weekend at Hungary, had been assured by Alonso that had nothing had been signed over the weekend, but the move has now been announced and he has not been contacted by him since then. And says hmm. Snafnauer, it was the first confirmation I had, he said, quoted by Autosport. Obviously, when we're in the paddock, there's all sorts of rumors. And I had heard rumors uh, that Aston were interested. Once you hear that they're interested, there's probably discussions that took place. And there's some other indications that discussions took place, like walking out of the same motorhome at the same time, all that kind of stuff, which I saw. But I was confident that even with the discussions, and there's nothing wrong with exploring, that we were very close. So yes, the first confirmation I had was the press release. I did ask the question. I was told, no, no. No, I haven't signed anything. So I was a bit surprised. I haven't spoken to him since he's on a boat. I think in the Greek <laughs> Isles somewhere, which, which by the way, soon turned out to be in itself a lie. So it looks like somebody had actually misled Otmar to think that he was out of cell phone range in the Greek islands when he was actually at a karting track in the south of Spain. So that the knife twists. So he signs mm. this deal, claims he didn't sign the deal. The deal gets uh, gets announced and he completely ices out his team principal. And you also made that great point about the fact that in a desperate bid to to kind of spin the PR uh, lever a little bit, they make that announcement that, hey, our, our test driver, our reserve driver, Oscar Piastri, congratulations, you'll be driving for the team next year. They throw that up there. He shoots that down with a brutal breakup text. And now all of a sudden, the Enstone team is sitting here having lost two drivers <laughs> in a matter of 48 hours. Just, just amazing. And again, I want to make sure that everyone understands at home, we're not taking this too seriously because Formula One is fun. And this is quite frankly, hilarious. And I get it's business <laughs> and it should be run like a business, but it's not our business. So we can laugh at this, but just remarkable, man. Okay, dude. Well, you know, actually it is our business because I just want to tell everybody at home that I can officially announce that our special guest co-host for the Scootery F1 book club 
is Oscar Piastri. We have a multi-year deal in place. He will be reviewing books for with us starting next week. Uh, so, he just sent out a please. text. Um, <laughs> I have not confirmed or committed to doing any podcasting with Scuderia F1. The only podcast that I would consider is Missed Apex. Spanners, give me a shout. Yeah, okay. Well, there, there. And fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Well, you know. You know, maybe I should have been. Maybe I should have done what Otmar didn't do, and like when I asked for a commitment from a driver to say, "Yo, show me your hands. Let me see if there's any fingers crossed, and let's see if there's, you know, let let let's just be honest with uh, one another there." But uh, best of luck to to Oscar on on the other podcast. I'm not jealous at all. <laughs> Lily Herman, by the way, dropped a fantastic bonus issue of Engine Failure today, and she does a phenomenal job of capturing and compartmentalizing exactly what's happened over the last mm. couple of days. And she does it in acts. So I'll just, I'll share what the acts are. Act one, McLaren mayhem, part one. And it goes into the sheer, I don't even know, chaos of Zach Brown accumulating drivers from every motorsport discipline <laughs> and signing them all, even when they're under contract somewhere else and signing drivers for a Formula One team when he has two drivers. And then the second one is Act two, Aston Martin, absurdity. And then the next one, Act three, Alpine, asininity. I don't know what that means. And then Act four, McLaren Mayhem, part two. And then Act five, Williams, what the effery. And then <laughs> Act six, to be continued. She does a phenomenal job of summarizing in the most lighthearted, hilarious way possible yeah, what we've witnessed. But yeah, it's it's yeah. crazy, right? And you have to think that McLaren or Mark Webber or McLaren and Mark Webber are at the very root of everything that's happening. And if we flip over to the indie side, you and I discussed this a couple of weeks ago, uh, Chip Ganassi Racing and issues an announcement, a press release saying, hey, super excited, Alex Palo will be joining us next year, the 2021 yep. champion. He sends a text message saying, absolutely not. I have not committed to driving for them. An hour later, McLaren issues a statement saying, welcome to the team. You're now our new driver without confirming where he's going to be driving for them. And then when Oscar Piastri sent his text message, it was awfully similar to the one that Alex Palu sent. So it's now widely speculated that Mark Weber, his manager from from Jam Management, has got some sort of deal in place with McLaren that hinges potentially on Daniel Ricciardo exiting. And presumably, and ESPN reported, I think we've got this somewhere in the outline, ESPN reports that over the weekend, at least four teams have actually reached out to Ricardo to ask where his head's at. But Mm -hmm. Otmar, and I think you touched on this a couple of minutes ago, Otmar is very open to the idea of reconciling with Daniel, because of course, Daniel was was with Renault in 19 and 20. Um, They're very open to the idea of him returning to the Endstone team. And I think if I'm Otmar, quite frankly, if I I've lost my junior driver and I've lost my senior world champion who scored two world championships with that team. Um, I can't really pick and choose. Like if Daniel Ricardo is willing to come to the team and pair with Esteban Ocon, like that's not a terrible, terrible option. 
I was just kind of thinking in all of this, like, uh, what, what, what's going through Esteban Ocon's mind? He's probably, hey, guys, I'm still here. You don't forget about me. But, you know, uh, Eliezer Gabriel uh, made a good uh, point in the live stream uh, in the chat. And it says, uh, at the end of the day, there's only 20 seats. Piastri might be the chosen one, but still doesn't have a seat. How is he in a position to turn down Alpine? Just saying. So, I mean, great point, oh, right? Dude, it's just like, dude, what, dude what, what does Oscar what know that we don't know? Yeah, yeah totally. What are your thoughts I mean, on this? I mean, obviously, he figures he's driving somewhere next year. I, I have a very good suspicion it's got to be uh, M- McLaren. I mean, there there doesn't seem any other logical uh, ter- or landing place for him, considering, I mean, he's you know, he had, you know, the, the stones to go out there and say, I'm not driving for Alpine in 2023. So, I mean, logically, that's about the only place that's left, unless it's, you know, maybe one of the other, like, you know, teams of that ilk, like maybe, I mean... Alpha doesn't seem like an option to me. I think they got a pretty good pairing in Bottas and, and, and Joe. I think that's a, that's a good pairing. Williams, I mean, that second seat is a bit of a, you know, Nick Latifi's seat seems to be a bit of a question mark. Haas, who really knows? I mean, they got a multi-year deal in place with the, with K-Mag. I mean, Schumacher seems to be finding his feet. It seems like for, for the first time in a while, Haas seems to be in a pretty decent place. So would you really want to disrupt chemistry when it just seems like when there's some chemistry forming? Alpha Tauri, I mean, Gasly just signed a new contract. To me, I don't know how much runway Yuki has left at Alpha Tauri. I mean, I don't know. If I, I was really quite excited about Yuki Sonoda after Bahrain in 2021. And then it's sort of been hit and miss ever since. And it just seems every time... He's, he starts to show some promise that, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm just not completely uh, convinced. So, I mean, maybe it isn't McLaren, but it just kind of seems there's like a lot of smoke associated with that fire. So who knows? I, I got to share my thoughts on the Piastri piece, and I'm, I'm going to kind of spin this from one of two places, which is on the one hand, he's contractually under the control as a racing driver with Alpine. And Otmar this week has clearly defined that all of their contractual requirements or commitments to him as a junior driver, which is getting tea time in a Formula One car, getting a free practice one session, getting sim time, being around the factory, studying telemetry, all of the things that they were obligated to do for him as a test driver, as a reserve driver, they've done all of those things. It seems like he's been a good soldier. So what suddenly happened in that relationship that it could turn so sour through that tweet? Because I don't know that anyone had reported or even speculated that there was a breakdown in that relationship. Now, that said, Alpine's in a really unusual position because they are an engine manufacturer without any customer teams. And typically, if you have customer teams, you have some degree of influence over who's going to be in those seats. So in this case, they don't have a customer team that they can kind of lean into to take on a Piastri, right? Like they can look at a loan deal, but do you really want to do a loan deal with a team running a competitor's engine? It's probably not. And 
I think really what may have happened here is Alpine were pretty clear that, look, we don't have an option for you internally. You're going to need to find your own external option. And maybe that frustrated him. Maybe that upset his management. But ultimately, it got to a place where the team was able to publicly and formally announce that he is a Formula One driver at Alpine, which is a solid middle midfield team. And then for him to brutally reject and renounce that seat in a single text message, again, what what is happening that we don't know that prompted or triggered that response? Is the relationship so badly? Did he know they were going to announce that and he was unhappy that they were going to do it? Did they do it because it was a flex because they believe they have contractual control over him and they wanted to get that out there before somebody else could, could mm-hmm. announce control? Like... I don't know. There's a lot of pieces that we don't know, and I don't know how to feel about Piastri. It's very possible he was treated poorly within that organization. Uh, They didn't give him the benefit of the doubt. They wouldn't give him any runway. Perhaps they didn't help him find a seat in Formula One. Perhaps they didn't have the capability to. But all of a sudden, there's a seat available for him, and then he shoots it down like nothing we've ever seen. It's one thing when an indie driver who's possibly going to get another indie seat shoots down an existing ride, but is staying in the sport. This is a guy who's not competing in any championship right now. He's literally just waiting for a Formula One seat to come up. One comes up at the team that he's been functioning with for years and he shoots it down. Like what is happening at Endstone that two drivers run away? I think ultimately, <laughs> ultimately with with Alonzo, it's probably term and money that they're offering a one plus one in small dollars. And again, the Alpine team is responsible to the board of Renault and offering offering Fernando $20 million a year over two years was never going to fly. Lawrence makes all the decisions at Aston Martin, and they were probably able to put that deal together pretty quickly. But what happened that Piastri wants no part of this team? We need to know. Yeah, uh, totally. I mean, I, I think you raise a number of great points there. And just kind of going back to uh, Alonso again, and it was interesting because this is a guy that has not been afraid to speak his mind both in and out of the car basically his entire career. And I went back and Tim and I talked about this in the, the the race recap on Sunday night. And I thought it was really interesting because at the beginning of the race, Esteban kind of squeezes Fernando into the pit wall and he's silent. Because I went back and I watched a couple of those key moments uh, with, with Fernando and his teammates when and, and it was interesting his comms were silent, you know, before, after, during, and, you know, it, and, and it just wasn't like in the, the, the five or 10 seconds, either side. I mean, it was quiet for the longest time. And I found that really interesting because I would have thought that, uh, Fernando might've been really, really angry, especially at the start there that, uh, he got uh, squeezed a little bit by, by his teammate, um, going down the start, uh, finish straight there, but, uh, he didn't, I was kind of thinking, that's really weird. I mean, Fernando has been very vocal over the years, sometimes on some very trivial and almost inconsequential things. And I just thought, well, why was he quiet this time? And then, you know, Tim and I talked about it. And then, you know, the the, the news broke like the next day that he was going to Aston Martin. And I was just kind of thinking, well, w- w- did that have something to do with it? Or did he just actually in this case just didn't care you know it was just it was just kind of funny it was just like it does it may or may not mean anything or maybe it does but i just found uh i i 
I'm just not used to Fernando being quiet <laughs> in certain situations. So I found that uh, a little bit odd. Anyways, let's take uh, one uh, quick uh, time out uh, to finish it up here. And then we would come back. I just wanted to talk about this uh, article that was written by Nate Saunders at uh, ESPN F1. And uh, just talking about uh, how Danny Ricardo deserves better than being a pawn in the whole Oscar Piastri sweepstakes. Anyways, we'll talk about that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the show. And yes, I just wanted to talk about this one. Uh, I think that Nate makes a a really, really good uh, point here, saying that he deserves better than being a pawn in the whole drama of uh, McLaren and Oscar Piastri and Alpine and this whole drama that's uh, going on. And uh, Nate uh, has to say, and I'll just uh, read uh, verbatim from his uh, article here, and you can find that on ESPN.com slash F1. And Nate says, quote, it reflects very poorly on Zach Brown and McLaren, how they have treated Daniel Ricciardo over the past six months. Ricardo, the only McLaren for- driver to won an F1 race since 2012, has been the first to admit his performances have not been up to the standards he set at Red Bull and Renault, but feels as though he has been made a scapegoat to deflect away from the deeper problems at the team. There have been other narratives in 2022, Mercedes violently bouncing car, regular Ferrari capitulations, to name two, which have distracted from the fact that McLaren has been one of the most disappointing stories of the season. The team came into the year promising return to the front of the grid, an opportunity provided by the huge technical rule chain change, but has fallen incredibly short of what they had promised 2022 would be about. While Ferrari, who McLaren fought for third in last year's championship, jumped to the front of the pack with their new card this year, the British team have floundered in the same no man's land they have found themselves in last year and locked are locked in a battle for fourth and now Piastri with Alpine, some distance off Mercedes and even further off the lead pair. End quote. I think that's a you know a very very interesting uh, summation that Nate puts into his article there, and you know if you go back and look at the constructors, I mean yeah they they are scrapping it out they're currently fifth in the constructors uh, championship just behind alpine and i think they are uh, they are disappointing where they are right now and i guess you know if you're ricardo kind of been this guy that has a pretty good resume in formula one is one seven eight grand prix now over the course of his uh, career i mean that's nothing to you know turn your nose up at he had a, a very very successful stint at red bull he had a couple of moments there at uh, at renault slash alpine in the two years he spent there and then it's obviously been a bit of a struggle at uh, McLaren, but I mean, he won at Monza last year, which was uh, I- incredible. And uh, maybe just because of the, you know, the, the struggles that he has or has had at uh, McLaren over the past year and a half, maybe that does make him, you know, rightly or wrongly, a bit of a, an easy target for some of their, you know, a way to level criticism or maybe deflect f- away from some of the issues that the team might have, as uh, Nate puts into his, uh, his article there. Your thoughts, Mark? Yeah, I think it's a great article, and I think you raise a really great line of questioning, and that questioning is, have we given too much shine to Zach Brown? Ultimately, he's been stewarding the ship, obviously with Andreas Seidel for many years. Zach has very much been the one that's leading the charge when it comes to identifying and and procuring talent, but all of a sudden, this team is... It's a disaster this year. Uh, They have significantly underperformed, despite the fact that the regulations should have benefited a team like McLaren. And then they have an incredibly 
public issue with Daniel Ricciardo underperforming. And in many ways, it's not so clear that the team has openly supported him in the way that maybe you would have expected them to do. And increasingly, there seem to be moments on track where they favor Lando when maybe Daniel's got a little bit more pace, but they don't give him the benefit of the doubt. So there's questions now about, hey, are his finishes really a byproduct of his authentic organic performance or because he's being held back to protect Lando Norris at times? I I actually really like this article. And I think Ultimately, Zach Brown has created, and obviously Andreas Seidel is a big part of this as well, but they've manufactured the situation that's currently here. They've manufactured a situation where they have a young, competent driver in Lando. They have a much older driver in Daniel Ricciardo that is struggling. And then you have Zach Brown going around signing 50 drivers every single week with the promise of an elusive seat somewhere, but nobody knows where. Are these going to be indie seats? Are they being signed for for Formula One, and every single time he signs one of these drivers, it adds this increasing pressure to Daniel Ricciardo, and at no point has Zach Brown come out and kind of reaffirmed to the world that Daniel Ricciardo is going to be our driver for 2023. And that's because I strongly believe that internally there's a significant amount of pressure on Daniel Ricciardo to relinquish that seat. And I think now that there's an opportunity potentially with the Enstone-based Alpine team, I think he's going to pursue that. And I think we'll see an announcement sooner rather than later that he's going to be released from his deal. He's going to sign a deal with Alpine and go from there. And I think if he doesn't, And if he does decide that he's going to stay on and honor that commitment that he has to McLaren, the team will simply pay him to stay at home, that they have got designs on having somebody else in that seat for next year. And it's going to be Piastri, possibly, but one way or the other, Daniel's not going to be there. And I think the preference for McLaren is he finds himself another seat and then it's clean and it's tidy for everybody. But if he can't, I think they're willing to pay him to sit at home next year so they can bring another driver in. And then that will be a PR disaster for this team. Because let's be honest, they've been creating a lot of PR mess recently. Like the Palo situation, you know, that the the root cause of that is really the fact that they're not doing their due diligence when they're signing these drivers. And ultimately, the Piastri situation, which we assume leads down the path of Weber and McLaren, we don't know, but we assume that they're at the center of that one too, it's not been a good look that they're underperforming and they're causing so much chaos. Again, it's fun, it's entertaining, and thank goodness it gives us something to talk about. But but I think this was a great article by Nate Saunders. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it definitely uh, had me going away from that one, thinking about uh, you know some of these different issues in a bit of a different light. So, uh, you know, cheers to Nate uh, for that. But just to this ongoing discussion about um, McLaren that we've been having for the past uh, several minutes, it, it's interesting, all this drama that seems to be centered around them in the last, uh, what, about three weeks now of, uh, you know, the, the whole Alex Palu thing and now the Piastri, Ricardo. Well, I mean, the, the Ricardo thing has obviously been going on a little bit longer, but it, it's funny because it seems a little bit off brand for them. And it, it's funny because over the past, 
I don't know what, say, 18 months or, or, or so, we've been quite flattering towards. Uh, very, very, very much. flattering towards. Yeah, you know, but like, you know, the, you know, like Zach Brown's such a done such a good job to get guys like, um, you know, James Key in there and, um, and uh, Andrea Seidel, all these key appointments that they had. They got a good driver lineup. And now it, it, it's, it's kind of funny. So, I mean, it's, it just kind of makes me wonder what's been kind of like brewing beneath the surface all this time where publicly it looks like, oh, they've been, you know, they've been doing such a good job, you know, especially last year and past couple of years, they've, they've been a team on the rise again. And then this year, I mean, obviously, I mean, the, the season still has a long way to go, but I mean, fifth in the constructors is all this drama in the organization at, at, at different levels. And it's just kind of funny. It's just like, why now? Why is all this uh, stuff happening? Or has it just been there all this time to some degree? It just hasn't, you know, it hasn't uh, sort of bubbled to the surface at the, uh, the, the, the MCT. So, uh, or the MTC, I should say. Uh, so uh, very, very uh, interesting. Um, I do want to move on away from, uh, McLaren. I want to talk now about Williams. I want to talk about Alex Elbon. And I love this. You know, Alex has got a bit of a cheeky sense of humor, and I love this. And, uh, you know, you know, following all the drama with Piastri and Alpine <laughs> and McLaren, Alex uh, yesterday, so that would have been Wednesday of this week, uh, tweeted the following. I understand that with my agreement, Williams Racing have put out a press release this afternoon that I am driving for them next year. This is right, and I have signed a contract for Williams for 2023. I will be driving for Williams next year. A whole bunch of hilarious laughing emoji faces, so obviously tongue planted firmly in cheek. And uh, Alex having a bit of a, a poke at uh, the expense of some other people in Formula One. But I think this is a. I think this is a good deal for Alex. I think this is good for for uh, Williams. I think that Red Bull may have still had some, they might have still had their tentacles wrapped into some options for Alex Albon potentially. Um, but I think that, I, th- I think for Alex, it's good to finally maybe make a, qu- a clean break from, from Red Bull and let his career develop in whatever shape or form that it takes. Williams obviously is a team that uh, needs to do a lot of developing to become more competitive thems- uh, themselves. But they got a good driver in Alex Albon. I love the guy. I think that um, he's got a good head on his shoulders. He's he's definitely a talented uh, driver. So I think this is a uh, good news. Do you have any indication of what sort of terms we're looking here? I mean, is it twenty three? I mean, there was some talk maybe it was a multi year deal, but again, you know, when it comes to terms and lengths of Formula One driver contracts, they tend to be. A little bit elusive. Opaque. Let's yeah, yeah, elusive. That's that's elusive. an even better word. Elusive, I think, is much better. Yeah, I think this is a great deal, and it's nice, quite frankly, to see Dalton investing in a talented young driver. And as it turns out, coincidentally, he just happened to be available because of the embarrassment of riches that is the Red Bull driver program. So I think the fear for a lot of people was that this was effectively going to be an unofficial one-year loan, but he's now very much embedded within this organization and truly detached from the Red Bull driver organization. And, And he's had a couple of nice flashbacks this year. I would caution though, I would caution though that I believe there's now more parity in the two Williams cars than there has been all year. And I will be very, very, very curious to see how the two drivers compete head to head for the rest of the year. And I'm talking free practice, qualifying, and the race, because at this point, I think we've all drawn the conclusion 
that Nicholas Latifi will not be coming back. But if Nicholas mm-hmm. Latifi suddenly can perform at par with Alex Albon in the final nine races, I think it becomes very hard not to at least consider to re-up him for one more year. And obviously the delta between the two of them was uncomfortably wide for the first half of the season. But I think a lot of that might just be the differences in the cars that the two were running. So we'll see. And I think at this point, you have to assume that there's going to be somebody else in that second seat next year, but it will be really great to see how competitive the two of them are when they have equal chassis, equal, equal upgrades through the rest of the season. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see, but I think this is a great signing and it's nice to see this kid uh, in Formula One without the pressures of having to compete for Christian Horner and Helmut Marco. Yeah, um, more news uh, for for Williams. So F2 driver Logan Sargent uh, will be, who's um, drives for Carlin in F2, will be uh, taking part in a 60 minutes uh, session at uh, the Circuit of Americas on uh, October 21st. So it's going to be the first time since Alex Rossi, um, who's uh, obviously another American driver, uh, will be taking part in an F1 session since 2015. Sargent said, quote, I'm super excited to be given this opportunity to drive my first free practice in Austin. To be given the chance of the U.S. Grand Prix is something extremely special to me. A massive thank you to Williams for putting the trust and belief in me to do a good job. The goal for me will be to learn as much as possible the new generation of cars. I'm looking forward to making the most of this experience and really enjoying it, end quote. So that that's pretty cool. And 60 minutes, that's uh, nothing to turn your nose up at. That's uh, that's pretty That's a, a pretty. Decent chunk of time Logan's going to get, and that's going to be uh, a second of a mandated rookie FP1 session uh, for Williams for this year after uh, Nick DeFries got uh, a test with them earlier this year in uh, Barcelona. Okay, moving along, apparently the deadline is very close for Andretti Motorsport if they are going to launch an F1 team in 2024. Apparently it's got nothing to do with the the, the tie-in with the 2026 engine regs that uh, still, you know, just like uh, driver contracts are elusive. I love you. I love how you grab that word right out of nowhere. I'm going to use that more often. Um, anyways, um, more on this one. I know that this uh, this is a story that uh, that you're all over, Mark. So what what is the latest with Michael Andretti and Andretti Motorsport and Formula One? Yeah, I think the I think the reality is this situation may have stalled. Um, obviously, Andretti is eager to enter the sport in 2024, but the reality is, if you want to join Formula One, you need to build and invest a significant amount of infrastructure to get there. Formula One's very different than Indy. In Indy, you basically use an off the rack chassis, and almost every component is standardized. You can stand up an Indy team in a couple of months. Formula One's very different. One, you have to secure a contract for power units. And right now, uh, Mercedes and Ferrari are absolutely not obligated to provide power units. Um, Given the current sporting regulations, the only team that is technically obligated to provide a power unit is Alpine because Alpine doesn't currently have a customer team and they're required to have at least one if the request is there. So obviously they're going to have to create some sort of relationship with Alpine. They're going to have to develop a monocoque chassis, a completely custom 
bespoke monocoque chassis, which is a massive monumental work effort. And then they need to build out the car, the rest of the car from there. But they can only do all of this if they have a factory to perform the work in. And they can only perform the work in the factory if they have the factory and they can staff it with hundreds of people. I think, while not impossible, I think that a 2024 date is deeply undesirable simply because the amount of work that would be required to get there. You think if they were given the green light today or tomorrow, which is unlikely, they would need to build the infrastructure and staff it in six months. And they've got one year to put together a car, which I don't think is is mm. realistic. And again, I still don't think Formula One, the commercial rights group, is sold on this entry to begin with. I think that it might be a great fit down the road, but I don't think that they feel that there's any urgency to add a team. And that's also where I am, to be honest, that if, if F1 has the opportunity to bring a team onto the grid, you need to do what major professional sports do in North America. You don't simply give an expansion team to the first team that waddles up with a pile of cash. You do an expansion process and you have an expansion committee and you explore options and you seek bids and you you consider all the different angles and the, the variabilities and the volatilities and the sustainability of the different bids. I think this is a bid. I don't know that it's a great bid. Um, and I don't know what value it necessarily delivers to Formula One because I'm not convinced that it was going to do anything to grow the sport in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Other than the fact that his commitment is very much to get American drivers in those seats, um, I just think there's other teams that might be able to do that even before he potentially could. So yeah, the timelines for 2024 are very, very, very tight. There's no way he's going to make them. Um, and I think he needs to continue to kick this can down the road if he wants to, if he wants to pursue this dream. Yeah, totally. Um, moving along and the team that always seems to provide fodder for the show, Red Bull are in the news again today. Apparently they've nicked another high ranking Mercedes engineer from their uh, Mercedes AMG high performance powertrains. Now, Helmut Marco was flexing earlier this year saying that uh, the Brig- uh, Brickstone, sorry, Bricksworth uh, facility uh, just completely losing uh, my train of thought here. <laughs> Bricksworth uh, facility from uh, Mercedes has provided up to 50 new recruits for Red Bull powertrains. I don't know if there's any truth to that or not. I mean, I always take a little bit of what uh, you know, Marco says with a pinch of salt. Anyways, the the latest person reportedly to have left a Mercedes to move over to uh, Red Bull powertrains is Phil Prue, who was uh, most recently the chief engineer in the Mercedes engine division. And uh, he's going for a somewhat uh, vague senior role with uh, RBPT. So very, very interesting. And then also... Honda is apparently going to continue their technical support at Red Bull until 2025. Um, you know, this is just such a confusing story that, you know, when they said that they were going to leave uh, Formula One to ca- concentrate on their road car division, the electrification of Honda's uh, road car uh, fleet, it's, you know, they've, they've done pretty much everything that they could do not to leave formula one so why not stay until the end of 2025 and if the rumors are to be believed that they'll still be around in 26 and beyond obviously there's been some second guessing at uh, honda hq in tokyo with that uh, decision to, to pull out of formula one right and just to provide some clarity on this one what we all thought was going to happen was this that honda was going to effectively back away and sell the ip to Red Bull so the Red Bull could take over the development of the current power unit. 
And then they would use their expertise from that to develop their own power unit for 2026, which wouldn't incorporate any IP from the Honda-derived power unit that they would be developing for 22, 23, 24, and 25. Ultimately, that hasn't happened. There are now two very distinct operations. You have the Red Bull Powertrains division, which is developing a power unit independent of any IP or expertise that exists. That is a fundamentally new power unit that they're developing from the ground up. And the power units that they're going to be running in their cars for 22, 23, 24, 25 are being shipped directly from Honda Racing Corporation in Japan. They are full bore unmolested Honda power units. And the expectation is that we should see significantly more Honda branding on these cars for the next couple of years until we get to 2025. Now, the reason that this is really beneficial for for Porsche slash Red Bull is that because they're developing a brand new power unit from the ground up and they're effectively a new engine supplier for 2026, the sport grants them all kinds of concessions that other teams won't have, like additional dyno time, additional test bench time, et cetera, et cetera. So they're very excited about that. I think Honda's excited that they're going to continue to be involved in the sport. And because Honda's still involved in the sport and they still have their thumb on the pulse of Formula One, it gives them the opportunity to make a decision about staying on for 2026 and beyond because they already have the infrastructure. They already have the test beds. They already have the factory. If they wanted to flip that switch and continue producing power units for 2026, seems like it's a relatively easy thing for them to do. Yeah. Yeah. And Mark, we're almost an hour and a half into this. And in any other week, I'm sure this would have been the, one of the stories that would have been right at the top of our, you know, of our agenda. But it just goes to show what a crazy week this has been. But, you know, almost 90 minutes and like you know, the silliest of silly season discussions that I think that, well, you and I have ever had since we have been doing the show together. But we're finally going to get to, to a story that you and I have been talking about. And that's the fact that Lewis Hamilton is now part owner of an NFL team. I mean, I think in a normal week, this would have been a big deal, but it's kind of fallen through the cracks a little bit. But it's uh, very interesting. Uh, Lewis is part of uh, an investment group headed by Rob Walton, who is the uh, heir of the uh, the Walmart uh, giant, uh, obviously. And uh, Lewis, um, well, yeah part owner of a, a, you know, a, a group that also includes Condoleezza Rice, who's a, the former, what was she, Secretary of State? I think uh, Condoleezza Rice was. So, I mean, a, amazing. I think in a normal a normal week, we would have given this uh, a lot more focus earlier in the show. So this is a kind of a, kind of interesting. It's it's fascinating. And and I love I love the story for a couple of reasons. One is any time that you can get an underrepresented group into ownership when it comes to major professional sports teams, it's a good thing. And I think Lewis is a great guy to partner with and a great guy to be made a part of that that organization. Now, the sale price of the team was a record smashing $4.65 billion US. And I went and looked this up in 2021, Forbes had estimated the value of the Denver Broncos at $3.75 billion. So the transacted sale price was almost a billion dollars more than the valuation from a year ago. Now, what's really crazy about NFL teams and NBA teams as well is the valuation of the teams is totally disconnected from the operating income of the teams. They they seem to be a great investment property or a great investment option, but 
realistically, the operating income is never going to be enough to actually justify the valuation of the team, meaning that I think for a lot of people, owning a professional sports team is just a big flex. It's something very cool. It's great to have in your portfolio. And there Mm -hmm. seems to be this thing over the last 20 or 30 years that valuations increase exponentially despite the health of the economy, despite what's happening on network TV. But all of that aside, Rob Walton, hired to the American retail giant Walmart, comes in, he brings a consortium of a group of people, like you mentioned, including Lewis, to secure a $4.65 billion deal. Wow. In that same Forbes report, they estimated that the Dallas Cowboys were worth $6.5 billion, meaning that if on the market, and I don't think Jerry Jones has any appetite to sell them, but that team's probably worth between eight and ten billion dollars, which is just mind numbing. But congratulations, Lewis. It's great to have you in the world of Formula One. Hope to see you on the sidelines regularly at Mile High. I guess it's not Mile High. Where did the where did the Denver Broncos play? Well, it's right beside where Mile High Stadium used to be. I can't remember exactly what it is. It's something, something at Mile High. You know, it's, uh, I, I should the know Power this. The Power Bowl. So. The Pepsi Bowl. Is that, is that what it is? Uh, I, I've completely forgotten. I, I always just call it Mile High Stadium. You know, I just ah, I never really M-Power got these. Empower Field at Mile High. Empower yeah, Field see, at Mile High. Yeah, I, I never really kind of got used to the, um, you know, some of these uh, fancy, you know, sort of sponsor names. You know, I, I kind of was, I liked all the, uh, you know, the, the, the old school ones. But uh, wow, $10 billion. I mean, I guess the, the, that would, you know, if those numbers are accurate, I mean, that, that would have to make the Cowboys the most valuable franchise on the planet right i mean just compared to i don't don't think anybody else could be in that conversation i'm just sorry i guess i'm sort of thinking out loud but that just (laughs) you kind of blew my mind with that speculation mark yeah crazy absolutely absolutely crazy but it's a smart investment because what we've seen for the last 30 years is that the valuation of these professional sports teams just spiral and part of it's just because there aren't many of them there's 32 nfl teams in the world there's 31 nba teams 30 nba teams in the world there's 32 hockey teams 30 baseball teams there's just not a lot of them so i think the the rarity of them helps to press, put pressure on the valuation as well, which is the same thing that we see in Europe with the Premier League and things like that. But yeah. congratulations to Lewis. I think this is a great fit. And for those of you that don't know, uh, Lewis has a place about 150 miles away from Denver. Oh, that's right. He does. Aspen, yep. And he yep. spends an awful lot of time in Colorado in the offseason training. Yeah. Oh, I, I can understand why Colorado's a, a beautiful, beautiful place. And you know, I often think that, uh, you know, if, if I could live anywhere, that Colorado would be one of those uh, places that would be on my list. Anyways, Mark, anything else? I think that's uh, pretty much all we have for, uh, for for this week. You know, I know we've covered a lot of ground in the last, uh, you know, hour and a half, but uh, it's been pretty good. Any any final thoughts? Anything you want to just uh, no, toss no, no, out no, there before we wrap major. it up? And I appreciate you giving me the option. Um, make sure if you like this podcast, go on Spotify, give us a rating. If you like this podcast and you use Apple Podcasts, give us a rating, give us a review. We have had some beautiful podcast reviews lately. We thank you so much for that. And finally, a huge shout out to friend of the show, JT the Human. Thank you once again for providing us with that fantastic intro music. We love it. It's fantastic. We get tons of great feedback about it. Um, And yeah, just thanks. Other than that, we'll see everybody in a couple of days with either an interview or a book club or a midweek news show. We got lots coming. 
That's right. If you want to get in touch, best way at Twitter at ScooterF1Pod or email at ScooterF1Pod at gmail.com. And that's it. That's a wrap. Bye for now. Have a great weekend.